0: Welcome back to Forever LDS. Today, as hoped, I am bringing to my inaugural interview one of the most, if not the most, successful LDS filmmakers in the history of LDS film. Modern LDS audiences would know him for his three most recent landmark films: 17 Miracles, Ephraim's Rescue, and the Cokeville Miracle. I should mention, That These are only a few of his most recent films. T.C. has been making an impact upon LDS and Christian or spiritually-themed movies for well over four decades. He served as co-director and cinematographer on Joseph Smith, Prophet of the Restoration, that played for years in the Joseph Smith building across from Temple Square, as well as the movie Emma. And, uh, I mean, this list is really long, T.C., You also were either the director or the cinematographer or both on such uh, movies as The Work and the Glory, Forever Strong, Gordon B. Hinkley, A Giant Among Men, Outlaw Trail. You can stop me any time that you want to.
1: Now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'll stop you now. It's Uh, a lot. But hey, that's a lovely introduction already, Chris. I can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to (laughs) say.
0: Well, I'll try and give you a word in edgewise from time to time. Not only did you produce the first three films that I mentioned, which are most recent, and those films were pivotal in breathing life back into the LDS market, because I think it had been, what would be the word, suffering. It it had not had a lot of success for several years, and your movies breathed life into that market. Seventeen Miracles was just an incredible film. And I I think you released it right in the midst of the summer uh, against all the biggest competition, but somehow you found a window. And I remember that you found this window where there were no other films uh, that were competing at least for another week or two. And that thing would have played on into the fall. And I remember you were upset that they took it out of the theaters too early. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it was still t- pulling pretty well, but yeah. Anyway, there's other considerations and so forth, and yeah, we it ended up going to to DVD then.
0: Oh, I know. But it's been
1: a it's been a fun ride, Chris. I can tell you, it's it's all fun. It's you know, it it is a lot of hard work. Uh, filmmaking is, as, as you know, having uh, done your project as well, but. It's rewarding. I, I still am excited, even as old and fat and bald as I am. I'm excited to get up in the morning and get going and, and uh, get working on another project. It's great.
0: Well, on your, uh, I was going to say in those films that you made most recently, you served in all those positions. Also, wardrobe, craft service, driving the transportation vans, so the sets every day. Well, I don't
1: do that, but I do a <laughs> lot of jobs, and and I have to say it's not because I think I'm the independent filmmaking. You, you don't have any money, and you have to,
0: whatever oh, you man, can do. You're, I, you're, I yeah. already knew the answer to that question. I mean, yeah. having directed the low budget feature film that I did, and by low budget, Hollywood would probably define that as anything under 2 or $3 million. And I happen to know the main reason why anyone would want to wear so many hats on a production, and you just said it. What is it? You don't have the money. Whatever you can do, you, you're you going to save. You're going to be able, able to put it on the screen. Well, so, yeah, for yeah, me, I it do was do just that. a raging ego. But no, I mean, I, I happen to know that saving money is always much more compelling of an incentive. I mean, I don't think there's anything more humbling than trying to helm the production of a feature film. What would you say was the first time that uh, you realized how harrowing that experience is? Well, you get it in pieces because when you're doing short
1: films and commercials and whatever, you know, it's easy to be the, the people behind the director and saying oh see what he's doing there i wouldn't do that i would do it this way and have these kind of little criticisms all along the way but the the truth is when you're the guy and you've taken it from this whole universe and narrowed it down to this is what we're going to do and this is the shot and this is how i want you to deliver these lines you know you, you there's a lot of responsibility and there's a lot of chances to make mistakes and So anyway, I loved having supportive people around me that at least don't gripe to my
0: face when we're filming. And I've noticed that you like to go back and use a lot of the same people over and over again, not only uh, in crew positions, but also as actors. When I say that, you might think that I'm referring to your lead actor from 17 Miracles and the most recent film that you made, The Cokeville Miracle. But I'm actually referring to Katherine Nelson. She is someone that you've worked with on four films now. And uh, I'm not sure that many people would know that or recognize her, but um, I have a history with her. She sang, she has one of the most lovely, haunting singing voices that I've ever heard in the LDS market. And I um, hired her to sing a couple of songs on the album for my motion picture soundtrack. So I was wondering, did you ever have in any of your films an opportunity to let her sing?
1: In the Emma film, I believe she does a little kind of an on-camera thing. And, I, and then she also does something in the soundtrack. I'm sorry, I don't recall exactly what that was. But she is terrific. She's all those things you're saying. It's not unusual for any director, even if he has a $100 million of film, to use a similar cast over and over. There's just something that happens where you become friends with actors. They please you. You're happy with them. My idol in film, Frank Capra, said 80% of directing is casting. So when you make good decisions and it works out, It's just very common to keep going back to those same people because you can trust them, you know that they're going to deliver and you enjoy working with them. Well, and the other aspect in our market here is that, you know, uh, I don't make films that are signatory to the Screen Actors Guild. They're all independent people. And so there aren't that many. It's not
0: like I can go out and, you know, find just to explain oh. to the uh, listeners what you mean by that there's well, a, the union uh, of, yeah. a union of yeah to them. And Utah is a non-union state, one of, one of only a handful of states in the United States that you can even use non-SAG actors. I mean, there, there are exceptions in Utah. I know people like uh, Rick Macy or Bruce Newbold, yeah, who they have a card. They, they are SAG, but they, because they live in Utah, they're allowed to work off their card. Well, listen, I wanted to take you back a little bit in time, because you and I first met in the early 80s in, at BYU's Motion Picture Studio. I was a brand new student, and at the time, BYU had an international distribution arm for 16 millimeter films, and I happened to meet a, the man who ran that department. Do you recall his name? Darrell Stoddard. Daryl Stoddard. That's right. Great enthusiasm. And when that's where we met. And he happened to mention that one of the most successful films in his entire catalog was a film called The Bridge. I'm sure you recall that production. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> How old were you? I mean, what what brought about that short film?
1: Well, I was uh, my senior year in, in college, and I have to Make sure I say that, you know, there were a lot of people worked on that film. Robert Hatch, who ended up as the director. Robert Erickson, uh, John Wadsworth, me. I was one of the executive producers and the director of photography on the film. And uh, we made several short films back in those days. That was one that really kind of punched through and is still selling still available on DVD, and, and people still comment on that film to me, even though, you know, whatever that is, 36 years ago or something, we made
0: that. Oh, my goodness. The first time I saw that film, I don't even think I was a member of the church. And I remember it had an enormous impact upon my understanding, my comprehension of the atonement and another place that we may have bumped into each other was in the harris fine arts building on byu campus were you a member of tad Danieluski's professional directors workshop
1: well i wasn't actually admitted to the class as as a director or a writer or an actor he did that also Uh, but i was the director of photography my senior year for all of the shows that they produced as students and so I was admitted to the classes and I would go and be there and you know was very involved with, that, with it that whole
0: year. Well that was a lot of fun. I mean Tad was a Czechoslovakian director and very involved in I think the Actors Studio in New York and and I doubt that very many students who were LDS ever really grasped uh, how many people he had influenced doing what he did and i mean you remember how he beat into our heads all of the rules of dramatic structure
1: (laughs) yeah yeah, i remember a lot of things about him and uh, it was a great start for me he uh, supported me and when I won film festivals in those years, he was, you know, very first one to stand up and say, wow, and great, and tell others anyway.
0: He wasn't a member of the church, and I think his style kind of wore on BYU after a while, and he ended his career at USC, but I'm told at the funeral it was a who's who of Hollywood that attended that funeral. And I don't think that many students at BYU or professors, even for that matter, were quite aware of how well connected he really was. But I remember one day in that workshop, we were shown a short film. Ivan Crosland was in it. He was a wonderful professor of acting and theater at BYU in those days. And he played a doctor. Were you involved in that production?
1: Yeah, that's my film. It's actually called Greater Love.
0: Greater Love. Okay. <laughs> and that film, tell us the premise of that, if you could. Well,
1: it was uh, another short film, uh, kind of a faith-based idea. That's a story that many people, especially in the church, have heard for many years across the pulpit brother in lessons where there's a child who is in an accident. They ask the sibling of the child to give their blood, They're in a remote hospital, and the child says, okay. uh, And the punch of the film, what happens, you realize at the end, is that the child thought when you give blood, you're giving your life, and did it anyway to save uh, her
0: brother. Oh, I'm glad I, I let you give that summary, because I was trying to remember that film also had a great impact on me. So I've known your name a lot longer than you may have known mine. The credits on IMDb are a mile long. And yet, they don't even have a photo of you up on IMDb. How does that happen? That's well, my own fault. They expect me to do it, and I don't want people to see what an ugly, scary guy I am. That yeah, their
1: imagination.
0: No, My face isn't up there either. Maybe somebody with technical savvy can go take care of that. TC, I know that for my entire career, I've been a strong proponent of the fact that no Latter-day Saint has to compromise their values, their morals, their testimony in order to be a storyteller or to be successful in this industry. And to me, you're a prime example of that. How difficult has it been for you to hold those standards?
1: Well, really, Chris, I, I think it's it's like it, the regular Sunday school lesson. Uh, this is what I, my pat answer I say to that question is, you decide early on what you will do and what you won't do, and then you, when you're presented with an opportunity that whatever it is you decided you wouldn't do, a beer commercial or something, you're presented with that, It's there's no decision to be made. You already made the decision back when you were younger, and you just say no, and you don't worry about it, and you move on. And that's has happened to me, and not a, not a lot, it's not an every year occurrence, but I have been offered... A lot of shows that I looked at them or a commercial, and I just very quickly knew it wasn't something I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And Let me just say that I don't criticize other. If there's other members of the church and they've done things that I've turned out, that's great. That's your own personal decision. But for me and my house, it's worked well that I just decided and have kind of steered myself toward projects that I uh, feel better about.
0: And I think that's that's probably a very balanced way of putting it. I mean, people have to put food on the table. They have to feed their families. It's a blessing that when you make that kind of a decision, young in your life, I know the hunger that a talented artist or a storyteller can feel for wanting success, for wanting to make a living in this industry. What advice then would you give to someone who might be tempted to let that hunger override their moral stance, their integrity, override, I guess, the values that they feel as a member of the church?
1: Well, I think it's like uh, any of those choices in life. You you can go ahead and and do some things (laughs) that you probably shouldn't. But you got, you, you're not looking at the overall picture because you might put food on the table today, but I, I don't, I think there's a bit of, there's, can be a bit of selling your soul involved. It changes your attitude in life. You know, wh- the more you accept and you're able to just move off and say, Oh, I'll make anything anybody will pay me to, to do. And so I think you pay a long-term fee for it, and, and it's, it's the same as any moral standards. You, you're, if you hold to the rod, and, and many, many years later, you can look back and say, well, you know what? I maybe didn't make as much money as I did, but I had a great family, and I stuck with it. And it's a hard business, you know. I think that's. What, I don't want to ever get very specific about what I think people should and shouldn't do, because. It is tough to make a living
0: in this freelance business. It is tough, and it's tough on your families. I know that from personal experience. Just being an artist is a crazy career to go into. Did any of the major – some of the scripts you turned down, did did any of them become major successes and propel everyone involved into instant stardom, and, and you maybe felt some regret about not being involved? Maybe it's partly because once I
1: say, no, I I don't want to be involved with that project, I don't think about it or notice it, I don't know, but
0: I doubt it. I really don't think I've had anything go across my desk that would have made any difference in my career. Well, it's, it, may, and it may well be simply that as people got to know you and they got to know the kinds of projects you would and wouldn't do, and your name may have come up as a possible DP, they were already saying, no, this wouldn't be the type of thing that D.C. Christensen will do. And so you sort of saved that problem before it ever becomes a problem. Yeah, if that's
1: happened, then yeah, again, I have no regrets of that, that's fine, weed it out.
0: Well, if there's any theme that seems to dominate all the projects you've chosen over the course of your career, how would you define that?
1: Well, those that I have chosen, I mean, there's a big difference between what I'm just hired to do and those that I've instigated, and they're my projects. Of my projects, I I would hope that they're delineated by having some positive, not even always faith-based, but just some type of a good moral and, you know, something that you can feel good about showing your family.
0: Well, at least in the last three films, I would characterize that theme as a testimony that there is a God and that he is intimately involved in the lives of his, his children, you and me. And that miracles do happen. In fact, that's in that word is in the title of two out of three of your most recent films. Why do you think that theme is so prominent in your films, especially those that you have, as you said, produced, written and directed?
1: Well, one of the one of my beliefs about this business is that it's you can't just make just some nice little film, and and expect this independent film to compete in the theaters with you know your other people are walking in, they can choose the latest Tom Hanks film or some local thing, and it's cost the same amount of money. You've got to give them something strong and something they're not really getting at other places, or you don't stand out. It's just like any marketing and advertising a class would tell you. And so I tend to choose life and death, things that matter, and show examples of people who stuck with it and did a great job in being faithful to the gospel and their lives and their principles, and they won out. So that hopefully people come out of the theater feeling buoyed up and happy about the hour and a half or two hours they've spent in the theater and not all sad and depressed.
0: Well, your most recent film... The Cokeville film Miracle is a film that I think I've now seen three times from beginning to end. And we have this rule in our home that we can only watch spiritual movies on Sunday. So my children could probably claim to have seen it many more times than I have. After making several films from the pioneer era, in fact, I would say that if any filmmaker could claim to be an expert on the 19th century, it would be you. Um, so with that in mind... What drew you to the story of that terrible day in Cokeville, Wyoming? We
1: had just finished uh, a short film, uh, a faith-based film called The John Tanner Story, Treasure in Heaven. We had a premiere at the uh, conference center in the little theater there. So this would have been about 2008, I think. My cousin came up to me, who I had invited, and his wife, Dan and Norma Brunswick, and, and they said, boy, if we've got a story for you, you got to hear this story. You, you could make this into a movie and I my immediate thought
0: was... well what's interesting, what you're leaving out is they already made a feature film out of the Cokeville Miracles and I don't even know what it was called, but what it starred Harry Hamlin or someone like that? There's Robert Urich and uh, oh, John Boyd his name. I oh, saw I remember I saw that, but I don't think they emphasized the same kinds of themes that you emphasized.
1: Well, I didn't know about that film at that time. And in fact, I lived in Utah in 1986. I didn't really, I remembered that there was an incident up there, but I, you know, the spiritual side of it didn't come out really for days, weeks, months, sometimes still coming out now. And so, yeah, the that movie of the week dealt with just the sensationalism of a mean guy and kids. Well, When I took this meeting with a fellow my cousin referred me to, I really was impressed and thought, yeah, that's a good story. But right then, I was doing 17 Miracles, and Ephraim kind of clung on to the back of that. And so it wasn't until two years ago I was really available to do Cokeville. And as I got into that story and started interviewing people in Cokeville, I was just blown away with the story. You know, there's been several stories told in the last few years that had a spiritual nature that later it has been found out there was a hoax involved with it, like a little kid is saying he went to heaven, but he really just made it up or whatever. This film, I this took that whole possibility away because there were so many kids that had a spiritual experience and parents and law enforcement people and so forth and so you, it could never have been a conspiracy. It couldn't have been. And then I knew I wouldn't have to worry about that. But in years later, somebody's going to say, "Oh, somebody just made
0: that up." Well, I, you know, I don't think that the significance of the subject matter of this film escapes anyone who watches it, considering all the terrible incidents of violence that have occurred in American schools over the past decade. And I saw in one interview, uh, I can't remember whether it was you or the person interviewing who made the statement that this was probably the first, the first incident in American history where we had a gunman go into a school or bombs uh, or violence being threatened to children inside a school. Is that accurate?
1: No, it really isn't. uh...
0: It wasn't the
1: first time. It's a sad history uh, in America. There had actually been quite a few. But the thing that really differentiated this event in Cokeville was it was the first time that the incident was happening and played out on the news. There were news cameras there. It was broadcast nationally, and they were telling there are kids in this room right now that are being held hostage by a crazy man with a bomb. And one of the things that that precipitated is many people, having seen that on television, bowed their heads and prayed for those kids in that room. And it worked. That national, you know, fervor that that caused of being that—it was like, you know, the Kennedy assassination happening— When, boom, and it was right on TV, first time, something like that. Well, this was kind of that idea with one of these hostage situations.
0: At the end of that film, you have a paragraph appear on the screen, and I don't recall the exact words, something about, we don't know why this particular incident ended the way it did and why others don't. I don't want to mess this up. Do you recall the wording on that? Not
1: exactly. uh, Something like... uh, Other hostage situations uh, have not always turned out as positive as that of the Cokeville incident. And we don't know why. But just as in Christ's day, not every leper was healed. Not every blind person was given their sight. But we should still recognize God's hand when we see it.
0: We all recognize God's hand in that particular situation. And I... I would wonder, in some sense, how others might react who maybe came out of the situation somewhat differently. Have you ever been approached by someone who uh, themselves was was wounded, or the incident just didn't come out as miraculously as Cokeville, and uh, and and maybe make comments, positive or negative, about their reaction to this? Yes,
1: I have. uh, In one example. We had actually a person involved with the um, Sandy Hook uh, shooting oh my. Who, who saw the film and was actually very supportive and positive about it. I did have one person who had lost a child in a not not in that this type of a hostage situation, but I don't know some kind of a. Uh, murder, or, or or suicide, or some, some terrible thing for a parent to go through. And that person said to me, where were the angels when my son needed them? And that's a hard question, you know, and and to think that I can, oh, well, here's the answer to that, blah, 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 blah. That's a point we make at the uh, credits of the end of the film. is I don't know why. Nobody, uh, I don't think, can ever say that, oh, they know God's will, and they understand him, and they can explain it. It's part of faith. It's one of the things that we deal with in this, on this earth. We don't know all the answers. We don't know all this. But you have to have just enough to hang on to and believe that there is someone that does understand God and that at a later time we will understand.
0: Unlike perhaps 17 Miracles and Ephraim's Rescue, I would think the Cokeville Miracles should have an impact upon viewers of any Christian denomination perhaps any religion that believes in God's hand or, or the direct intervention of God on occasion. What kind of response have you received from people of other faiths?
1: Well, it's been a, a, a real mixed bag because we took the film and premiered it in some southern cities and did terrific. The uh, audiences, they, they would fill out cards, survey cards, and they were so positive, and oh, this is the best faith-based film we've seen, we love this, blah, 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 great message. But when we would open in these towns, we didn't get the support, we didn't do very well. And that could be because maybe we didn't have enough money spent on marketing and people didn't know it was there. I don't know, but we really did not do well in any of those southern markets that we opened in, which were the four of them primarily. Do
0: you think there's a possibility that word got out that this was a Mormon thing?
1: There is that can be part of it. Uh, we did have some internet presence where people would write whatever Facebook page and things like that, and say, "Hey, don't let them fool you. This is a Mormon film. They're trying to convert you to Mormonism." You know, there was a little bit of that. And that could be.
0: Well, I think that's together. unfortunate but, because I've, I've, you know, as as a, much as I have seen films that center on LDS themes. I felt like this one ought to have a lot of crossover. It deserved to have a lot of crossover. But, you know, it's, it's just an interesting thing. It's even an artist like, uh, I'm not going to name names because they wouldn't want me to, but there are uh, fine artists who paint paintings of the savior or and and they simply don't, when they go to uh, galleries out east or down south, they don't talk about the fact that they're LDS. They just let their scenes of the Savior say f- for themselves what they want it to say. And it's unfortunate.
1: Well, uh, I'd comment uh, like this. I, uh, You know, this is a tough business. Uh, the, the toughest part is theatrical. You're up against these multi, multi-million dollar campaigns that Hollywood puts out, that's after you've spent a few hundred thousand on your film instead of a couple hundred million. But it ain't over till it's over and I'm hoping that through DVD and digital platforms, you know, Netflix and so forth, that the week still can make uh, a good entry into those other faith-based areas that we weren't able to in uh, theatrical. One thing that's surprising, I think, that some people not of our faith have found as a problem with Cokeville is that, you know, it, all of these kids who saw an angel or heard a voice or what those kind of spiritual things that happened to them, they later identified the person that helped them as an ancestor. And There seems to be an importance to that through some other events that I won't go into, but there seems to be an importance in these kids knowing it was an ancestor. Other religions don't believe that
0: ancestors can come back and help people on the earth. I don't even think the world looks at the term angel and thinks of it as being an ancestor. So that actually, that theology might be kind of surprising for people of other faiths.
1: Yeah, their, their actual uh, doctrine is that angels have nothing to do with living on this earth unless they're a saint. If they were a saint, then they can come back and deal with this earth, but otherwise they were created as angels and they have not had an earthly experience. Well, the truth is uh, I think actually very few Christian people know that that's the doctrine of their church. And I've actually had many of them tell me, I believe in it. I I had an aunt that I know she helped me. I felt her presence and this happened. But even so, that has been, we've had some distributors who've looked at the film and said, we would need to change that. It can't be an ancestor that came and helped them. Well, we're not going to change it because that's what the kids said.
0: Yeah, that's the most innocent part of the whole story is that
1: because it doesn't fit somebody else's idea about how that should work. Well, sorry, that's what they said, and that's what we're going to keep. I
0: I think that's going to be a powerful theme, though, in countries like China and uh, Japan. They may not overwhelmingly have a Christian culture, but they do have a culture that respects and worships even, to an extent, ancestors. So I'm going to be very curious to hear in a year or so how the film was accepted in those kind of cultures.
1: Yeah, that's true. We have not had experiences yet with the Asian kind of area where, as you're discussing, and that may, that may go over very well there.
0: What kind of message do you hope that this film will have upon victims and survivors of and their families of some of the incidents that we hear about in the news where the outcome was not so miraculous, at least not on the surface.
1: Well, I my hope is that anyone who's gone through something like this at least can see that sometimes God's hand intervenes and can accept the fact he did not intervene maybe in their instance or maybe not in the way they would like him to have intervened because we've had several people and articles Dealing with Columbine and Sandy Hook that have said that there was some type of divine intervention, not as overtly as there was at Cokeville, but I hope that those people can not distance themselves from God and feel like, oh, who's he? How could he let this happen? How could there be a God that would allow this, but can see that, you know, we just have to hang in there and wait, and at some point, maybe we'll understand all of this better.
0: Well, there's that great quote in the Book of Mormon where uh, the prophet is watching the torture and uh, the burning of children and asks much that same question. And the reply I think that he receives is simply that the glory of God is going to be represented and everyone has to have an opportunity to be judged. I wish I could quote that scripture a little more effectively. I don't know the scripture, but I can't say it either,
1: but that is a good reference.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, why do you keep doing what you do? Um, What motivates you to pursue such a challenging career? And like I say, I know for a fact the sacrifices that our families sometimes make to let us go off and do what we're doing. And so what drives you and and keeps you moving forward? Well,
1: there have been a lot of rewards to the career that I've chosen. It's fun doing commercials and a lot of the other just kind of secular things that I do. But the real driving force is when you do a project. Here's my friend Chris wants to talk about the bridge and greater love and these films that were done, you know, 37 years ago or whatever. Those films give a longevity to your life and your career to where you feel like, yeah, it's been it's been worth it. And there's more stories to tell. There's in our culture we have so many great true stories of our through our
0: heritage uh, i don't think i would ever run out of of good stories to tell okay well this is your chance and i'm sure i'm not the first person to ask what can we expect in the future from your production company remember films what's the sub what's the subject of your next project
1: you know i i'm truly i have not jumped in and
0: said... Oh man, you know, I thought I would have an... Uh, no. Well, that's okay. So you you yeah. got some ideas bouncing around in your head, but right now you're putting your attention on making sure that everything happens for Cokeville Miracle.
1: No, no, Cokeville's kind of launched and gone. I am just looking deciding what to do next, but it's a big decision. If you choose a project that doesn't stir people's souls and and you're not able to pull it off, or whatever. It's you know you're in this te- business. You're only as good as your last movie, baby. You have to really make sure. I do that. I've made the best decision that I have in front of me for a film to do. And I'll tell you, the way I do that, Chris, is I don't in any way say, okay, now it's time to do this type of a genre of film. This type of a- I think people always want to this. That's not what I do. I look for what is the best story that I know, and then I concentrate on that because that's what it all comes down. People love and relate to a story.
0: Well, every story that you've actually personally produced has been based on a true story. Is that the kind of a theme that you'll continue with?
1: I don't know because I actually have an idea. One of my ideas could involve historical fiction where you take something that – actually
0: happened and build on it because we don't know that much else about it interesting and of course that's how i've made my career i just take an idea of something that has some history behind it and then uh, let it bring up all its own questions that are worth exploring listen we want to thank you tc for giving us your time sharing your perspective And for setting an example, is that corny to say? I know none of us is perfect. I mean, we make many mistakes, but I'm still proud of the fact that you have demonstrated how an LDS artist can reach for the stars, reach for the highest quality in his or her art or craft without compromising their personal values. And I mean, that doesn't mean that we're like general authority material here. But I I hope it means that we don't have to look back at our careers and cringe too often at the things that we've helped make or produce. And we're honored that you agreed to be our very first forever LDS interview. That's a distinction that you will forever hold. And I hope someday that actually means something.
1: Well, Chris, I have to admit, not only am I not general authority material, what I am is I am the primary pianist material. That's my job in the church. It's <laughs> The greatest you could ever
0: have. Love it. Well, I'm just in the Sunday school presidency, so <laughs> we we do what we do, and it's all an honor. Listen, we wish you Godspeed in all that you do, T.C. T.C. Christensen, everyone. Thanks, nice Chris. Uh, we hope, T.C., you have a Merry Christmas. And for everyone who is listening to Forever LDS, As usual, stay close to the Lord. And if you don't feel as close to the Lord as you did yesterday, ask yourself who might have moved. Thank you and have a great day.